0: It's 2018, and a clean-cut young German man is waiting in line at a bank in Kagoshima, Japan. In his hand is a transfer form to wire millions of dollars to the US. Ahead of him, Japanese grandmas and grandpas stand patiently in line, waiting to make deposits and collect their pensions. When he finally gets to the front of the queue and hands over the form, the teller calls the manager. Because this young man has been here before each time sending millions of dollars abroad. It seems unusual, and the higher-ups at the bank have questions. Is he laundering money? The young man doesn't speak enough Japanese to explain what's going on. And nobody at this provincial bank, hundreds of miles from Tokyo, speaks English well enough to understand. The young man is a computer scientist, But he's also a foot soldier in Sam Bankman-Fried's master plan. Sam was trying to make a killing from a weird market quirk. Crypto was hugely popular in Japan, and that meant prices for Bitcoin were much higher than in the US. This presented a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for Alameda, Sam's crypto trading firm as he explained on the Real Vision podcast in 2021.
1: You want to buy an American Bitcoin and sell it in Japan, because as it turns out, Japanese Bitcoins were consistently trading like 5 to 30% higher, which is massive. You never see ARBs that big. It's a billion dollars a day on both sides.
0: Working on Wall Street, Sam had learned all about ARBs, or arbitrage trades. It's the art of buying assets and then instantly selling them to benefit from fluctuations in price. Now, with the young man's help, Alameda was buying Bitcoin in the US for dollars, transferring it to a crypto exchange in Japan and selling it at a premium for yen. But there were roadblocks to getting the money out.
1: Then you realize that they're not going to let you wire money out to an American bank. They'll only send Japanese yen
0: to a Japanese bank. That's where the young computer scientist came in. As a resident of Japan, the man could open a bank account here. But now the bank managers were suspicious.
1: They're like, that's sketchy as shit. Right. Where's your money coming from? And we're like, well, it's fake Internet money.
0: When communication breaks down with the bank, Sam gets Alameda's lawyers on the phone. Eventually, the bank understands. This is arbitrage and the fake Internet money is crypto. The young man returns to make more transfers and Alameda's profits start to explode. Sam told the Jax Jones and Martin Warner show in 2021 it was his first huge win. We're doing $10 $10 million, $15 million
1: a day. And, you know, the spreads were between 5 and 20%. It was just a sort of trade that, like, you just don't see. The spreads are too big. And at some point, we just realized, like, no, it's real. This is not all just sort of one long red herring. And it was a really great feeling when we put that together.
0: This is Sam's origin story. A genius international trade where he outwitted Japanese compliance and even the markets— to pocket $30 million in profits. Sam's tale of this daring Japanese mission helped cement his image as a market visionary. It would be repeated by Sam, his investors, and even some of the world's biggest media organizations in the years ahead. But what if it was all just a tall tale?
2: No one in the mainstream media bothered to take the time to figure out if any of this was true. Because clearly... None of it was true.
0: I'm Tom Wright, and this is Crypto Kingpins from Project Brazen and USG Audio. Episode two, Money and a Hat.
2: I'm an experienced guy. I've seen a lot of stuff. I've seen Wirecard. I've seen subprime mortgage, seen medical fraud.
0: I've seen it all. Mark Cajodes is a short seller. He looks for companies he thinks are run by fraudsters, and he bets against them in the stock market. But even to Mark, Sam's story looked different.
2: In most frauds, 80% of the business is real. In the case of SBF, nothing I could say was real. Even the money wasn't real because the guy's story wasn't real.
0: The Japan Bitcoin arbitrage play had become mythic as Sam's fame grew. Within four years, he'd raise $1 billion from investors and become a global celebrity. For Mark, though, Sam's story just wasn't adding up. In his eyes, there was no way Sam could have made $30 million on the trade.
2: This trade was not like a special secret. So anyone could have done this. And as we know... The more money that is thrown at arbitrage, the smaller the spread
0: becomes. Sam was a latecomer to crypto. He had only set up Alameda in November 2017. And as Mark says, when more people start making an arbitrage trade, price gaps narrow quickly and profits dry up. So sure, Sam might have made some money, but $30 million on this one trade. Mark doesn't buy it
2: that story in my mind from the genesis was always a lie. So that's a bad starting point, you know, for where this whole journey began. He didn't fool me, and he probably didn't fool a handful of others, but everyone else he essentially fooled
0: and kept the charade going. If Sam Bankman-Fried embellished his business origin story, We are going to have to go back further in time to figure out the truth. We'll find the answer on the trading floor of one of Wall Street's most private firms. Sam used his taste for risk to build a crypto empire. But he could have chosen a different path. He could have become quietly wealthy. Not a billionaire, but a regular rich kid turned regular, rich adult. So how did he get here?
1: Nothing bad happened, basically. Really got along with my family well and pretty nice upbringing in the Bay Area.
0: That's Sam talking to the Empire podcast in 2021. He grew up on the Stanford University campus where his parents, Joe Bankman and Barbara Freed, taught law. Their large home was near a dorm for undergrads and filled with bookshelves. It had a grand piano a lush backyard and a pool. In interviews, Sam constructed an image of himself as a special child.
1: I wasn't sort of like really into kid things, but you're also in a position where you're not really able to kind of like hang out with the grown-up, so to speak.
0: Sam's parents liked to host dinner parties and they loved having philosophical sparring matches with other professors over supper. The couple believed in utilitarianism. It's a philosophy which focuses on outcomes to guide decision-making basically an ends-justifies-the-means moral system. Sam explained why this worldview made sense to him in an interview in early 2022 on the 80,000 Hours podcast.
1: Thinking quantitatively about things is probably a piece of this. Thinking on the sort of like more cognitive and rational side and less emotional side about impact on the world.
0: Barbara and Joe had high expectations for Sam and his younger brother, Gabe. They believed that a person's purpose was to maximise the well-being of others. Sam was careful in interviews, like this one with the Empire podcast, to paint a picture of how his family was out of the ordinary.
1: My parents were really concerned with what impact they were having on the world and what they could do there, which has been really kind of inspiring to watch.
0: Sam went to Crystal Springs Uplands, a private school that was popular with wealthy Bay Area families and then to college at MIT, where he majored in physics. He settled in quickly, joining a nerdy fraternity where everyone played video and board games. And he became a vegan. The way he described it publicly, his decision to give up meat, appears to have been spurred by a desire to tell others what they wanted to hear. A trait that would come to define Sam in the years ahead.
1: I was probably at like 20% vegetarian or something by the end of the school year. And I was eating tofu one, one night and a friend said, Hey, well, hey Sam, are you vegetarian? And I said, yes. It was not true. I, mean, I had a burger for lunch. But I said, yes, it just seemed like the answer
0: to give. And I haven't eaten meat since then. At MIT, Sam also discovered a new kind of philosophy. Not all that different from his parents' utilitarianism. It was this new set of ideas that would guide his actions in the years to come. What we need is an ethical revolution so that we can work out, how do we use this tremendous bounty of resources to improve the world? In 2012, William McCaskill, a graduate student in philosophy at Oxford, gave a TED Talk about his new idea to change the world. The audience was supportive, but McCaskill's idea, called effective altruism, was controversial. It tries to respond to these radical changes in our world, uses evidence and careful reasoning to try to answer this question. How can we do the most good? Effective altruism is about maximizing your positive impact on the world. Often this comes down to money and making as much of it as possible in order to give it away. Effective altruists are encouraged to donate their earnings to charities with maximum impact. Often global health projects... Critics of the movement say its self-appointed leaders shouldn't get to decide who is most in need. That's the role of governments. But this was just the kind of movement that appealed to Sam. And in the fall of 2012, while Sam was a student, McCaskill arrived on MIT's campus to promote effective altruism.
1: And he just emailed me and asked everyone wanted to get lunch in Cambridge that day. And that's my first in-person interaction with effective altruism.
0: Just as Sam had become a vegan on the spur of the moment, he embraced EA on a whim, as he told the FTX podcast. He and McCaskill met up at an Au Bon Pain Café near Harvard Square. And it was here that McCaskill pitched him on the idea of earning to give.
1: The EA movement particularly appealed to me because I think it's sort of right about its long-term
0: thoughts, which is that, you know, you should be trying to maximize the amount of good that you can do. Sam wanted to do good and getting rich in the process wouldn't hurt. The EA movement targeted bright young students like Sam and encouraged them to get jobs on Wall Street, rather than go work for charities in lower-paying roles. As he explained in his TED Talk, for McCaskill, the job of saving the world was best left to the billionaires. There's a lot of ability to take careers that are very lucrative, so they can earn a lot of money, like Bill Gates did. Through that, you can donate a large proportion of your earnings most effective charities and have an impact through your donations. Sam was sold. McCaskill suggested he try a firm called Jane Street, where many staff were part of the effective altruist community. Sam landed a summer internship there, a move that would change the course of his life and introduce him to the world of high-stakes trading.
3: I definitely made a lot of money off of Sam that summer.
0: In the summer of 2013, Milo Beckman had just started a prestigious trading internship on Wall Street at Jane Street Capital. Unlike other big New York financial firms, such as Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley, Jane Street isn't a household name. But within banking circles, it's known as a powerful force in quantitative trading. Quant trading is a techie area of finance that uses complex algorithms to trade stocks, bonds and currencies in milliseconds. And much of it is powered by math nerds, like Milo.
3: I was a math kid, I went to math camp. Because of that, I got heavily recruited for a bunch of like quantitative finance type jobs. And that's how I ended up at Jane Street. When I started, I already knew like half the people there from New York City math team. They recruit pretty heavily out of that pool.
0: Milo was a native New Yorker. But it was hard not to be impressed by Jane Street's downtown office and its view over the Hudson River. The rooms themselves were airy, with whitewashed walls and high ceilings. But they were filled with long lines of desks, each stacked with a tower of computer monitors. On his first day, a colleague guided Milo between the walls of screens to his desk, right next to another intern, a 21-year-old physics major at MIT called Sam Bankman-Fried. Right from the start, Milo noticed a competitive vibe in the office.
3: They encouraged us to gamble a lot, like with our own money. There was like a kind of company-enforced poker night that all the interns participated in. Full-timers would come by the intern area and like propose gambles, and that was part of the culture. Like you need to get used to the feeling of taking on risk and not caring about it.
0: The atmosphere at Jane Street felt more Silicon Valley than Wall Street. The higher-ups wore t-shirts and jeans and had computer science PhDs from top schools. By the time 5 p.m. rolled around, people would be playing board games and poker in the office. But the appetite for risk-taking was anything but casual.
3: There is a game that they played every summer called Money in a Hat. And it's truly exactly what it sounds like. They take a hat and everyone puts $20 into it and a folded post-it with your name on it. And then, like one by one, you pull out post-its and read the name. And the last person whose post-it is left in the hat wins all the money. (laughs) When it got near the end, I was one of the last names still in the hat. And so people were trying to like buy my stake off of me. And I remember Sam was like offering me $1,400 for my post-it or something. And I was like, if you're offering me this deal, then clearly it's like not a good deal.
0: Sam clearly had a burning desire to win. He might not have gotten the money in the hat, but as an intern, he developed an obsession with taking big risks. Jane Street encouraged this mindset, but they also had a whole host of controls in place to make sure one big gamble didn't take down the whole company.
3: They were just trying to like train us to be responsibly reckless with money.
0: Another Jane Street intern from the math camp world got to know Sam playing League of Legends. It's a popular video game in which teams of five battle one another. He like, loves that game. Not very good at it,
2: uh, <laughs> but he loves that game. Which, by the way, that game is not good for your mental health. I think it has probably made me like… <laughs> it's funny to admit this on a recording, but it has probably made me a worse person <laughs> like, because of, like how toxic like
0: games can get. Like many at Jane Street, Sam was learning to gamify every aspect of life. But this approach would come at a cost. During his time at Jane Street, this other intern, who asked not to be named, remembers being most impressed by a fellow intern called Caroline Ellison. She was quiet, wore oversized glasses, and occasionally flashed a goofy smile.
2: You know, she seemed similar to Sam, less awkward, but also like very smart, very academic person.
0: Like Sam, Caroline was the daughter of two top professors. And like Sam, she would eventually be charged with multiple counts of fraud and money laundering. But back in 2015, she was just 20 years old and studying math at Stanford.
2: She had done some like research papers in college at that time. And I was like, oh, like that's like very impressive. I like mathematics a lot, but I haven't done any research. So I was like, wow, that's like, very cool.
0: Caroline had been a precocious child when she was just three years old, her parents read her the first Harry Potter book. By the time the second book had been published, she was five, and she refused to wait for her parents and read it herself. Beyond Harry Potter, though, she had another love, math. Here she is talking on FTX's podcast. I've
4: been into math since I was a little kid, I'd say. Yeah, my dad has written multiple math textbooks for kids as a hobby. So those kind of came out of him teaching my sisters and me math when we were young and getting us to do a bunch of math competitions.
0: Caroline was used to being the best in her class. But according to an article in Fortune magazine, she wound up at Jane Street after being passed over for a summer internship at a tech company in her junior year. It was a big blow to her pride, one of the first times she wasn't at the top of the pool. But Caroline found her stride at Jane Street, By now, Sam had taken a full-time job at the firm, and he became Caroline's mentor. They had a lot in common. They both loved math. His parents taught law at Stanford, where she was studying, and hers taught economics at MIT, where he'd gone to college. And like a lot of people who worked at Jane Street, Caroline was also into effective altruism, or EA. Here she is again on FTX's podcast. So I
4: got into EA in... Uh, Freshman year of college, I guess. Yeah, I'd say the general idea of effective altruism is trying to do the most good you can and how to measure that good.
0: Caroline also believed in earning to give, which meant big money was important to her.
4: The ultimate goal, or one of my most important goals, I think is maximizing my impact. I mean, the direct thing is making money.
0: To begin with, Caroline found working at Jane Street stressful. But she picked up trading quickly.
4: I wasn't super into poker or games or like the stuff that a lot of traders are into. So I think it's sort of something I've learned more on the job.
0: She did so well that after she graduated from Stanford in 2016, she was offered a full-time role. For now, the future seemed bright.
4: Mostly I think young, high-earning, highly educated people tend to be too risk averse. It doesn't really make sense for me to like be that worried about saving really just make more money in the future.
0: Jane Street had coached Caroline on how to gamble. And in her eyes, the odds were all in her favor.
4: That world has eaten up and spit out a lot of young and attractive guys.
2: This is the story of one of
0: fashion's dark secrets.
3: I was overwhelmed. Like, I had never seen anything like this.
0: At the height of abercrombie and fitch's success
5: this was me being carefully manipulated being lied to tricked and traded like a commodity
0: investigating allegations that would take me into a world of money sex and power this is world of secrets season one the abercrombie guys listen wherever you get your podcasts Sam was making a mid six-figure salary at Jane Street and donating a large chunk of it to the effective altruism movement. Not bad for a 25-year-old, but it wasn't enough. He wanted to do the maximum good. So after three years, in September 2017, Sam handed in his resignation. Brett Harrison, who would later become head of FTX's US operation, was a colleague of Sam's at Jane Street. Here he is speaking on the Lunar Society podcast.
5: We both left Jane Street around the same time. You know, he had told everyone at Jane Street that he was leaving to join the Center for Effective Altruism full-time.
0: Usually, when you quit a job in finance, you're immediately locked out of the company's systems and you see out your notice period at home. Firms do this to stop ex-employees taking their latest trading secrets to competitors. But because Sam said he was going to work for a nonprofit not a rival company, Jane Street didn't throw him out. In fact, they were relaxed about his exit, but not for long. They very soon after started this trading firm, which didn't make people super happy. In fact, I've been told that Sam never actually worked at the Center for Effective Altruism. It was just a line he gave to Jane Street. Jane Street was actively trading crypto, and it was at Jane Street that Sam had learned about the Bitcoin arbitrage opportunity in Japan. So when news reached the firm that Sam had set up his own crypto trading company just a few weeks later, it ruffled some feathers. Sam called his new outfit Alameda Research, and his first move would be to replicate the arbitrage he'd learned about at Jane Street. From here on, Sam would carefully build the myth of his first genius trade and his image as a noble philanthropist. And to staff Alameda, Sam turned to the EA movement. In November 2017, Alameda was born. Sam started the company with two co-founders. The first was an old friend, Gary Wang, a gifted coder Sam had met at a high school math camp who'd been working at Google. The second was a newer acquaintance named Tara McCauley. Sam had met her a few years earlier through his donations to the Center for Effective Altruism, where Tara was CEO. Together, they hired a small team, all EA types, and they agreed to give half of Alameda's profits to charity. The start of the company was as spur of the moment as other big decisions in Sam's life so far. Becoming a vegan, joining the EA movement, and quitting Jane Street. His early hiring decisions at Alameda were just as haphazard, as he told the Empire podcast.
1: It was like people I knew from high school, from college, from effective altruism. It sort of just grew out from people who knew people. We had like 50 interns coming in and out over the first few months, it was just like hordes of people.
0: The effective altruism movement is a tight-knit community with members all over the world. That's how Sam had found the computer scientist in Japan, the one willing to line up at a provincial bank in 2018 to cash in on differences in Bitcoin prices. The computer scientist wanted to help make money to give it away. But the Japanese arbitrage couldn't have made nearly as much money as Sam had claimed, says a person who worked with him. Alameda needed fresh capital and fast. Its initial funding was a $50 million loan, much of which came from another successful effective altruist, Jan Tallinn, the co-founder of Skype. Later, Sam would refer over and over to the successful early days of Alameda and the insane profits of the Japan Arb. But just a few months in, the firm was already in trouble.
5: It was funny. We had a phone call and he told me that it
0: wasn't really going super well. That's Brett Harrison, Sam's old Jane Street colleague, speaking on the Lunar Society podcast again. When Sam called him up in 2018, Alameda had been around for about five months. They were working out of a 600-square-foot Berkeley walk-up strewn with takeout boxes and cushions for napping
5: he said it was really great in the beginning like they made a lot of money they had this arbitrage trade and then a few things kind of went by the wayside they had sent tokens to the wrong wallet and ended up like losing millions in the process and they had some big bet on and it went against them and so they lost a lot of their trading capital
0: now sam was facing his first management test
5: so there was a big fracture within the company. You know, there was half the crew that wanted to kind of rewrite everything from scratch. There was another half that said like, okay, we can make some small incremental changes from here and fix things up. And Sam and Gary were more in that latter crew.
0: By April 2018, Alameda had moved out of its grubby apartment and into a more professional office space downtown. It was here in a conference room that Sam's co-founder, Tara McCauley, confronted him. She and three other Alameda executives had big concerns with how he was running the company. Specifically, his approach to risk management and ethics. According to an article in Time magazine, they accused Sam of inflating the company's numbers, lying to investors and, quote, gross negligence. From the outset, Sam's running of Alameda was slapdash. He spoke in interviews about his trouble opening accounts as regulated US banks didn't want to deal with this Wild West industry. In an interview with Real Vision in 2021, Sam described the problem.
1: You send money to buy Bitcoins, that's step one, right? And then your bank account shuts down because JP Morgan doesn't want to deal with crypto. So now you got to go and find a new bank account.
0: In interviews at the time, Sam expressed contempt for old school US banking regulations aimed at protecting consumers and stopping money laundering and fraud. He saw these rules as creating needless paperwork.
1: A lot of this is like this dog and pony show. Like, it's not just being compliant, but also making sure that you've like given sufficient evidence as cover for that the people you're dealing with that they're no longer worried about getting fired. That they feel like if their boss asks them what they did, they can hand them a pile of paperwork and be like, I did all this paperwork. And losses be like, I'm not fucking reading that. You, you got away with this one.
0: You know? In that same interview in 2021, Sam even said he had named his company Alameda Research so it sounded more like a plain vanilla financial advisory and not a crypto trading firm.
1: If you named your company like we do cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, arbitrage, multinational stuff. No one's going to give you a bank account if that's their company name. They're just going to be like, oh, geez. Yeah, no, we've been warned about companies with this name. You know, you're going to have to go through the enhanced process. And I don't want to bother with that right now. It's almost lunchtime. But everyone wants to serve a research institute.
0: Alameda's books were a mess. There was no HR, no accountancy department, But Sam was ploughing forward with trades. Lots of them. Sam had clearly internalised the risk-taking prized at Jane Street. But while they kept careful records and had sophisticated controls to manage risk, he scoffed when his Alameda colleagues tried to put similar procedures in place. But in interviews, Sam made out that disagreements were simply about his management style. Here he is on the Conversations with Tyler podcast in early 2022.
1: I think it was like a pretty good manager when everything was going really well. As soon as shit hit the fan, I had no idea what the fuck to do. And like, I had no idea what you do when two employees just vehemently disagree with each other about what to do. And no amount of talking causes those disagreements to come together.
0: Several Alameda executives had reached the end of their rope with Sam. They wanted him gone. So they gave him an ultimatum resign or else they'd walk and take the team with them. Sam refused. He told the Wall Street Journal that the staffers left the firm because of personal disputes and their lack of productivity, and that Alameda addressed the issues that they had raised. Tara and the three executives who'd confronted him quit, along with another dozen employees. One of them, Naya Buskal, would later write on an effective altruism forum that by the time she left, as far as she recalled, pretty much all profits had been squandered, quote, to bad trades and mismanagement. Alameda was only a few months old, but it had already lost millions of dollars and half of its staff. Now, surrounded by loyal devotees, Sam would push on. And this new incarnation of the company would be even looser and outside the lines than the last. By early 2018, Changpeng Zhao, or CZ, was on top of the world. His crypto exchange, Binance, was thriving, and he'd just been on the cover of Forbes, which put his net worth at as much as $2 billion. By comparison, Sam had reportedly burned through Alameda's initial investment, made huge losses, and prompted a staff walkout. Sam saw CZ as an inspiration. But to reach the heights of Binance, he needed more money.
3: What we do know is that in 2018, Alameda was seeking outside investors' funds, basically to
0: trade more. That's Tyler Gelash, the CEO of the Healthy Markets Association. You heard from him in episode one. Seeking fresh cash, Alameda's top executives put together a basic slide deck for investors.
3: They were making claims that frankly raised more red flags than the Ohio State marching band. Things like 15% returns with no risk.
0: Sam was claiming he could make a guaranteed 15% return for investors through trading on crypto markets. The figure was unheard of.
3: It's also clear that they received a frosty reception from many of the investors that they were pitching.
0: James Block, the crypto fraud blogger we also heard from last episode, said the 15% guaranteed return smelled of a Ponzi scheme.
5: To me... When somebody tells me they're going to pay me double-digit interest rates with no risk, I automatically think there's something very wrong here and it's possible that this is some type of Ponzi scheme. So my guess is that Alameda was essentially a snowball that started back a very long time ago and just kept growing. And that's what happens with every Ponzi. It has to keep growing in order to survive.
0: But Sam was determined to keep Alameda going. CC's success had shown him the promise of crypto. And with much of his top team now gone, Sam was hiring. In spring 2018, Caroline Ellison walked into Jumpin' Java, a laid-back coffee house in Berkeley. She was stopping off on her way to a live action role-play party, and she was dressed as a wood nymph, with a string of green lights wrapped around her forehead.
4: I didn't just randomly decide to do crypto on my own, (laughs) obviously. Basically, what happened is I was uh, visiting the Bay Area and uh, Sam was here. So I like asked him if he wanted to get coffee.
0: That's Caroline talking on FTX's podcast. She was on a West Coast recruiting trip for Jane Street at the time and hadn't seen Sam in six months since he'd left the firm. So they decided to meet up.
4: And he like, Cancelled a few times and then eventually said yes.
0: They found a corner in the coffee house and started to catch up.
4: And I was like, oh, so, like, uh, what are you up to? And he was like, oh, I can't tell you. (laughs) And I was like, "Okay, that's fine.
0: Sam was acting coy, but Caroline didn't press him. It wasn't the response he was looking for.
4: And... He was like, "Well, well, I guess I could tell you." I was like, "No, you don't need to tell me anything you're not comfortable with. If you're like you have some kind of like secret thing going on, that's fine." He was like, "No, okay, I'll tell you about it." <laughs> and so yeah, that's what I learned about Alameda.
0: Sam let Caroline in on his secret about the big money Alameda had made by trading crypto in Japan. Or at least that's what he claimed. Sam was doing what he always did, creating a mystique around himself and the business. Caroline was hooked. She liked to be the best, and crypto was like Wall Street on steroids. Here was an opportunity to get in early on a hot new industry. Within a few weeks, she quit her job at Jane Street and joined Sam's new crypto firm in Berkeley.
4: Basically, after kind of visiting and uh, talking with Sam, it seemed like too cool of an opportunity to pass up.
0: Caroline was happy to be back in the Bay Area, she posted on Tumblr about enjoying the California sun, biking to work, and going wine tasting in Napa. She'd also just broken things off with her boyfriend and blogged about being back on the dating scene. In one post, she wrote jokingly, how do I signal my genuinely sweet and feminine nature on my dating profile? Should he go before or after the section on wire fraud? Caroline would more than fill the shoes of those who'd quit Alameda. In fact, she'd be one of Sam's most loyal lieutenants, right until the end. The U.S. wasn't working for Alameda. Banks were asking too many questions. And so when Sam told Caroline they were moving out east, to Hong Kong, the center of the crypto universe, and a city where rules were easier to break, she was all in. Coming up on Crypto Kingpins.
5: At the time, I mean, sky was the limit.
0: Well, he wanted our support. He wanted our endorsement and also like our validation to boost his credibility.
5: No matter how good I was at
3: math, I was never quite as good as Caroline Ellison, you know. SBF and his team had
1: very rapidly left Hong Kong on a private jet.
4: I guess that should have been a red flag.
0: Crypto Kingpins is a USG audio production in partnership with Project Brazen. It's written by me, Tom Wright, and managing producer Megan Dean. From Project Brazen, Bradley Hope and I are executive producers. Josh Block is our executive producer from USG Audio. Marianne Hel Gonzalez and Nick Brennan are senior producers. Georgia G., Lucy Harley McEwen, and Ben Walsh are reporters for the project. Susie Armitage is story editor. Claire Bahn is Sound Design Supervisor with Sound Design by Alex Port Felix. Seymour Milton is composer. Lucy Woods is head of research. Brian Ho is series creative director. And Julien Pradier is series designer. Noor Abdel Latif is podcast strategist. Production management from USG Audio by Josh Laulonghi. And special thanks to Dwakesh Patel of the Dwarkesh Podcast. For more information on this podcast and other podcasts from USG Audio, go to our website, usgaudio.com.